Good morning. It's great to be here this morning. It's great to just join together in worship as we uh, just celebrate and magnify who God is together uh, as a group, as a body, as a church. Uh, It's really a a special thing to do. Uh, If you're like me, sometimes you think that worship stops when the singing stops, right? Uh, But it's neat that it doesn't, that we can enter into a look into the Word, look into the Bible uh, with just uh, as big a heart of worship and an attitude of worship as if we were singing a song. Uh, So that's what we're going to do this morning, continue our worship as we look into the Word. And looking at uh, a passage of Scripture found in the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 21, uh, verses 4 through 9, is where we'll be camped out uh, primarily. We're continuing on in the Bible Initiative, and uh, January 1st we started uh, the theme for this year at LCF is getting to know your Bible, the Bible Initiative, and started at Genesis, and we'll work our way through this whole year of 2017, uh, through the Bible, uh, all the way through December. If this is your first time here, one of your first few times here, please do not be intimidated by the Bible. Uh, Never, ever, ever uh, be intimidated by the Bible. Uh, don't feel like, whoa, they're in numbers, it started in Genesis, I'm way behind and won't know what they're talking about, I won't be able to get anything out of this. Or maybe you've fallen behind in your reading and thought, I'll never catch up, I'll never be up to speed with where they're at and won't figure it out. No, not the case. Join us now, join us today, Uh, God's got a word for you today, and uh, jump right in, Uh, don't be intimidated by, by the Bible. Um, never, ever, ever. Uh, this morning as we look into this passage, I'm going to ask you to look at it through the lens of three different perspectives. We're going to look at this passage from three angles. And so the questions this morning, the angles, the lenses that we're going to look at are, first, what does this passage tell me about them, meaning the Israelites? We're going to be looking at the Israelites wandering through the desert. The second lens is, what does this passage tell me about me? And the third, what does this passage tell me about Jesus and who he is? What does it tell me about them, me, and Jesus? Through it all, overarching this entire message and all three of these lenses, I want you to hear this statement, and that is, God is our faithful provider. All the time, he is our faithful provider. You could be having the best week of your life. Uh, The best day of your life, literally the bluebird of happiness, is riding on your shoulder. God is our faithful provider. You could be like me and uh, pick Villanova to win in your office bracket. You could have the worst week ahead of you that you're facing. God is our faithful provider. Uh, Bigger than our greatest week, bigger than our worst week, our worst situation, Uh, That is constant throughout. His character is our provider. We're going to see this in the the life of the Israelites in this little account as they're wandering through the wilderness, that God is their provider. So the first perspective is, what does this tell me about them and what they're going through? First, let me read the passage, Numbers 21, 4 through 9. It says, From Mount Hor they set out by the way to go to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. 
Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. The people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. An interesting passage, wouldn't you say? What is going on here? Again, we'll unpack that as we first look at what this tells us about them. The Israelites had just left Egypt after a 400-year captivity. 400 years as slaves they lived in Egypt, meaning generations upon generations knew nothing but slavery as they lived in Egypt. And now God, through using Moses, uh, set them free, and on they go to a land of promise, a land that he said is flowing with milk and honey, saying, this is what you are destined for. This is my promise to you. Trust me, and we will get there. Trust me, and you will, <clears throat> you will get there. All along the way, we see over and over and over again that God is their faithful provider. As they're leaving Egypt, they are literally given treasures, gold and other valuables to fully fund them on their way. This is just before Starbucks had a global footprint, and there wasn't much by the way of food and drink in the desert, and so God provided them time after time with food, with manna, and with drink, water literally flowing from rocks. Over and over again, the Israelites had this picture that God is their faithful provider. <clears throat> However, who loves a long road trip? Many families are already experiencing this right now as they're away on spring break. And if you've ever taken a road trip with your family, probably longer than 15 minutes, you have heard the most popular question ever asked on a road trip, and it is... Are we there yet? Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you, son. <laughs> As if on cue. <laughs> and how many times can you hear that question before your skin starts to, your muscles tense up, your skin, you know, your hair stands up and, ah, what do you mean are we there yet? My kids, my son has taken to twisting that question around. I'm on to you, buddy. And he says, how much longer? Oh, Yes. Not nearly as aggravating, <laughs> that, that question. We get impatient on the way, and this is what's happening here to the Israelites. They are getting impatient, and not just here, where it says it in, in Numbers chapter 21, but we see throughout their journey in the book of Exodus and here in Numbers as well, time after time, they are complaining. They are grumbling. A series of rather intense, are we there yet moments that they begin to question God and say, what is going on, God? This is a very real situation. We're a little freaked out. How are we going to eat? How are we going to drink? This is terrible. We're done for. We're going to die in the desert. 
Time after time, they complained to Moses saying, it would have been better if you would have left us in Egypt, where at least we had food to eat. It would have been better for us to be as slaves than for you to drag us out here and we're going to die in the desert. And how quickly we forget God is our faithful provider. Complaining is a big deal to God. It certainly gets his attention. In Numbers chapter 11, the Israelites were complaining and God sends fire around the camp. Complain about food and he sends them quail blown in off the sea. And so much quail, it almost overwhelms them. I would say it does overwhelm them. That there was more quail meat than they knew what to do with and they actually got sick from it. Numbers 13 and 14, we see the Israelites are this close to the end of their journey. They are just on the other side of the river from the promised land and they send spies into the land and 12 spies go out and all but two of them come back with reports of fear and gloom and doom saying there's giants in the land, this is terrible. We've come this far and we're this close only to be routed by what's on the other side of the river. We're done for. They're bigger than us. They're stronger than us. They have bad breath. This is awful. We're dead. There's no hope for us. Joshua and Caleb said, no, God is our faithful provider. He will make a way for us. But they, the other spies incited such rebellion and fear in the camp that they revolted against Moses. And the result of that was God said, okay, you're going to wander in the desert for 40 years as a result of this. Until the generation that has left Egypt dies off. And then your children can go in. But you're going to wander until that, until that happens. Numbers 21 here, it says again that they grew impatient. <clears throat> it's interesting that we see that a refusal to trust God, when we defiantly choose to live under our own desire and control, we will get what our hearts are set upon. Biggest fear, the, the fear that they spoke over and over and over again, the Israelites, saying it would be better for us to die in the desert. We're, we're done for, or we're afraid of dying in the desert. And choosing fear time and time again, instead of relying upon God, their faithful provider, that's exactly what happened. They died in the desert because they continued to rebel against God. We might be tempted to say, to minimize these events, to minimize and, and rationalize this complaining by saying, well, it's, it's understandable that the stress, the tension of this journey created this issue. How could they not complain? That's some pretty rough stuff they were going through. It made them complainers. I mean, they're walking in the hot desert. Imagine the blisters on their feet. No doubt they got sand in their shorts. And let me tell you, chafing makes everyone miserable. Right? No air conditioning anywhere to be found. The situation was just too great. They became complainers. It's not true. It's much larger than this. The situation didn't make them complainers. A stress or attention or attention intersecting my life does not cause the problem. A stress or attention intersecting my life will reveal a problem. And such is in the heart of the Israelites. The desert didn't make them complainers. It revealed that they had a heart of grumbling and complaining. 
God is our faithful provider. So we see that the Israelites had a heart of grumbling and complaining. Now, what does this passage tell me about me, about ourselves? We have a hard time not complaining sometimes, don't we? No matter how good life is, we can always find something to point at, to put our finger on and say, this could be better. We will always see room for improvement somewhere. I've been here several months and have gotten to know many of you uh, pretty well and others of you just getting to know and my desire is to know all of you. But I feel like now, you know, it's a safe enough period of time that I can let you in a little bit, you know, a little tidbit about myself. And that is, I confess, I have a refrigerator door problem. And it's not the function. I understand. You open them, you close them. It's that I have this refrigerator door problem that once the refrigerator door is open, I have this internal clock that starts counting. It's still open. The fridge is still open. What's going on? For the love of all things good, the refrigerator is still open. Would somebody please close the door? And I can literally lose my mind over a refrigerator door. Anyone else? Please, someone. The second service, nobody raised their hand. But what did happen was spouses were pointing. That was pretty funny as well. But why, oh why, is it that my family makes me lose my mind? It's their fault. (laughs) He's sitting front row center. I don't know what to do with that. But is is it their fault that they make me go crazy? Or maybe it reveals in my heart that I have this vein of saying things absolutely must be this way. And if anything strays outside of this narrow little rail, well, then it's chaos and bedlam. I think it's my problem. A stress or attention does not cause the problem. It reveals a problem. That's just a small little happy tidbit into my life. (laughs) But what does this look like? We complain. When do we complain? When are we most prone to complaining? When am I most prone to complaining? I am most prone to complaining when my expectations bump up against my current reality and it just doesn't match. And there's a conflict. This is what I want to have happen and this is what real life is and they're missing and... By golly, I'm going to complain about it. And so when that happens, this is what I learn about myself. It makes me insecure and I complain. We see it in Numbers chapter 11. The Israelites complained, we don't have food to eat. I am feeling very insecure about where my next meal is going to come from and how are we going to support ourselves? And they complain. When my expectations don't meet my reality, it makes me afraid. The Israelites in Numbers 13 and 14, on the the doorstep of the promised land, got freaked out by the giants and the people living there and said, we're done for, we're doomed, it's over. And they were afraid. When my expectations don't meet my reality, it makes me very selfish. This is going to say insecure, and we could say I'm insecure when I'm redundant, but... 
It should say, when I am selfish. And in Numbers chapter 21, it says, they grew impatient. The Israelites grew impatient. What were they so impatient about? It's because the timeline, they wanted it now. We've been wandering and meandering for a long time, and I'm tired of this. I want it now. I know what's best. And so they complain. But what happens when we complain? It's interesting. It's much bigger than just us airing a grievance or us saying, I'm not happy about this. When we complain in these instances, we're actually making making an accusation against God. Saying that when I am insecure and I complain, I am saying, God, you don't love us. You don't love me. When I am afraid, the Israelites did this and I do this too, you don't care about us, God. When I am selfish and demanding my own way, as they did in Numbers 21, we shake our hand at God and we say, you are not good. And we begin a character assassination of God in our complaining. Complaining is so much bigger than what we think it is. Thinking of, "Mm, I have a headache, or I stubbed my toe, I'm complaining about this, or Villanova isn't going to win the championship. When we complain, we accuse God saying, you don't love us, you don't care about us, you are not good. And when we begin to believe that God is not good, that he does not care about you, that he does not love you, and you will rebel against God because you will take control of your own life. And the character assassination begins. So what's my response? How do we respond to this? I'm not up here, I'm not standing here telling you, well, the answer is simple. Just don't be insecure, don't be afraid, and don't be selfish. Amen, let's go home. No, because we all bump up against those feelings and experiences. There are times in life where we do feel insecure, that we do feel afraid that I do feel selfish, what then? We rely upon the fact again that God is a faithful provider. And we see in his word in the Bible an appropriate response to that. So when I am insecure, I can stand upon the promises and the sure foundation of Philippians 4.19, where it says, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Where's my next meal coming from? What am I going to do? God will supply your need. When I, am in a, when I am afraid, when I'm freaked out thinking the giants are just way too big, this is so overwhelming for me. Proverbs 18.10, I can stand upon, and it says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. When I struggle with selfishness in a timeline and say, It must be now. I want things my way now. Hebrews 12.1 is an appropriate response as we remember, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. I love that passage because it goes back to Hebrews chapter 11, immediately before where it lists the great hall of fame of faith, the heroes of the Bible who in improbable circumstances and situations God provided for them time after time after time. That's the great cloud of witnesses. So we can look at that and say, 
God, you are a faithful provider. And even though this feels long and this road is worn out and this is not my choosing, I can run with endurance. And that lets us move forward. Like Paul encourages the early church in Philippians 2.14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Paul very well knew the history of the Israelites and knew where grumbling and complaining and disputing led, and that is farther and farther away from God. So as we move forward, may we do so without grumbling and complaining. So why is complaining such a big deal to God? Because complaining is a symptom revealing a much deeper and darker disease. It's a deep heart issue within the human heart, within the human soul. You can go back to the Garden of Eden, where the serpent came to Eve and whispered in her ear, did God really say, and planted that seed of doubt by opening the door to questioning Does God care about me? Does God love me? Is God good? We see it continue through the life of the Israelites as they wander and complain in their blindness and unbelief towards a providing and loving God, looking for something better. We can see it in our own hearts as we ask the question and do some introspection and say, what do I complain about or wish that was different? The seed of sin that's planted is dissatisfaction. And when dissatisfaction is rooted, when it grows and it's fully mature, dissatisfaction blooms a heart of complaining and discontent, and that spawns three types of people. Bad people, sad people, and mad people. When dissatisfaction is fully blown up in my heart, become a bad person, meaning we put our foot down and say, I'm the one in control. We get stuck in a habitual sin, and it only increases our callousness towards our need for God. Become sad people, where we become so overwhelmed by the world around me. I believe that I'm too far gone even, that I'm beyond saving, and that there isn't any hope for me. I become a mad person where I say I blame God for my current reality, not meeting my desired expectations. There's been a pain or a loss that has ignited my anger, and I point my finger at God saying, this is all your fault. Why is complaining such a big deal to God? Because he is after our hearts. And the seed of dissatisfaction takes us those places. So we can see the symptoms, we can see the disease. What's the cure? God being a faithful provider has provided a cure and we see that as we shift the lens and shift the focus and say, what does this passage tell me about Jesus? God certainly responded to the Israelites complaining. He sent fiery serpents into the camp and it bit many people. Does it seem like a bit of an odd reaction to you? telling the first two services, I'm not sure if they're still here, but we did let several serpents go in the sanctuary this morning just to keep you on your toes. 
we didn't really do that, but we talked about it. And what a great visual aid that would be. <laughs> but what is going on here? Fiery serpents in the camp, biting people, causing many to die. What's going on here is that we see again a picture of God that he does not let sin go unchallenged. Sin is a revolt against God in his good and perfect will. And in his holiness and in his goodness, he will confront sin. And God directly confronts their grumbling and complaining. He confronts their desires and their grasping at satisfaction according to their own, the Israelites' own insecure, fearful, and selfish, selfish expectations. And sends the fiery serpents. It said that if you were bitten, they were called fiery serpents. If you were bitten by one of these serpents, the symptoms and the affliction would be that you would feel like you were dying of an insatiable thirst. And many did. And that was the the feeling that they had. Confront sin directly by saying the Israelites were saying they needed something else and desiring and thirsting something else besides God, their own way. And God challenged them directly with that. But the people recognize their sin and ask Moses to intervene and pray, and he does. And God gives him another set of rather interesting instructions. To construct a bronze serpent and put it on a pole and lift it up. And if anyone should look at that, they would be cured. They would be saved. A couple things to to look at as we process that. Why? Why? Why a bronze serpent? When an Old Testament sacrifice, animals were killed so that sinful man might live. And there was an inversion that took place where a normally, <clears throat> the normally polluting substance or actions had the opposite effect in a ritual context, and they actually purified. And so those bitten by the fiery serpent, by the snake, were restored to life by the dead image of a bronze serpent. And all they had to do was lift up their eyes and look. The bigger, more important illustration or the bigger, more important picture that we see here as we we ask that question, what does this tell me about Jesus, is that right here we see a picture of the gospel. If you've been to church as a kid, uh, you went to church as a a youngster, um, or your kids now, probably the first verse that they ever memorized was John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I want us to expand a little bit on the context of that verse and when and how that was given. Jesus was meeting with Nicodemus, a religious leader of the time, a successful guy and all, all would say in the, in the eyes of the community of the of of that period of time, but was trying to figure out Jesus. What is this salvation? What is a follower of Christ? What is this all about? Are you really the son of God? And met with him under the cover of night to try and, you know, not draw attention to himself because he had this conflict in himself. I want this, but this over here, this Jesus, and how do I make sense of it all? And so John chapter 3, verses 12 through 16 says this, as Jesus is interacting with Nicodemus. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? 
No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We see a picture of the gospel that those who picked up their eyes and looked at the bronze snake were saved. We see the bigger picture of Jesus in that Jesus, made in the image of what was afflicted, sinful man, came to us as a man, put on a cross and lifted up. And it is us who lift up our eyes and look upon him and believe that finds salvation. This is a significant passage and an important, an important message that we can look to the cross. What do I do with my insecurity, with my fear and my selfishness? I look to the cross. You and I both, all of us, have experienced the bite of discontent, of dissatisfaction. And it's expressed many times through our heart of grumbling and complaining of saying, my reality does not meet my expectation and I'm upset and I'm going to let you know about it. Complain about my schedule, about my job, my car, my house. It impacts every single one of our relationships. We complain about our family, our kids, our spouse, We complain about Uncle Joe that only comes on Thanksgiving, the neighbor with the barky dog. We complain about lots of things. But we only spread the venom as we raise our fists to God and say, you don't care about me, you don't love me, you are not good. I'm going to leave with you some visual triggers this morning. That is, what what do we do with this? And these visual triggers are everywhere. The first one is is everywhere. You see this if you see an ambulance or any emergency vehicle, go to a doctor's office or a hospital. The serpent on a staff, the snake on a pole, symbol for, for healing. Every time you see this, would you think about this passage and ask yourself the question, what am I looking to for my satisfaction? What am I complaining about? What am I doing about my insecurities, my fear, my selfishness? Let's this be a reminder and point us to an even more important picture, and that is the picture of the cross. So that every time we see the picture of the cross, every time we see this image, may it remind us that again, God is a faithful provider. God is a faithful provider and has provided for us his son to take our sin upon him, take it to the cross, take it to the grave, and leave it there as he rose victoriously. So three things I ask you this morning, and that is this. First, remember. Remember all that God has done. Not only do we see how he has provided in history through the Israelites, 
in history through the great cloud of witnesses, but remember in your own life, how has God provided for you? We can come up with a list, things that we're aware of, and there might be even things that we're not aware of that we've overlooked. But remember all that God has done. Second thing is to reconsider. Reconsider where your heart is, where your treasure is, what you are clinging to saying, this is what I need to be satisfied. This is what I need to be able to say, this is enough for me. Then the third thing is return. Return your eyes to the cross to remember what did do enough for all that I need. This morning, if you're in the bad camp, Return your eyes to the cross and see the goodness of God. This morning, if you're in the sad camp, return your eyes to the cross and see the grace of God. And if you're in the mad camp, return your eyes to the cross and see the love of God. Let's pray.